If you have your Bibles, open them up to James chapter 4. If you need a Bible, there should be one in the seat back in front of you, the Pew Bible, and the passage we're looking at will be on page uh, 1013. And if you don't own a Bible, that can be our gift to you this morning. Uh, we love to put the Word of God into people's hands. So if you have your Bibles open to James 4, we'll read verses 6 through 10. But He gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do come before you with your word open. We pray, Father, for the Holy Spirit that you have granted to the hearts of every one of your believers who resides within us to teach us, to illumine us, to plant the Word deep within us. We pray that we would receive it joyfully and then live it out with passion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's good to be back with you. Gail and I took some vacation time the end of... May, for about 10 days, we went up to Montana. It's a longer story than that, but we had planned a European trip and that fell through. So we ended up in Montana, but it was a good thing. You know, God providentially gives you what you need. And so we desperately needed just some rest, some relaxation, some downtime. And so that's what we did. Um, we spent some time up there. We played some games and read some books, uh, books that I'll recommend to you, if you have not read Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, uh, it's a book that I read when I was up there, I highly recommend it to you. Um, for the believer, it is, it is refreshing. It's something that you don't hear each and every day. Um, other than that, we read a couple Nancy Guthrie books. I think there's a couple women's book clubs going on. Uh, even better than Eden is one of those. We read a few chapters of that. And then Blessed, her commentary on Revelation. Uh, and then John Piper's book, Desiring God. I'm going to use a little bit of his information this morning in this particular message. I have a book in my library, along with these, by Frank Thielman. It's Theology of the New Testament. Um, he writes a little overview of the theology of every book in the New Testament. And he has a very succinct and clear message of what James is trying to get across in his epistle. He says it's the wisdom of the undivided life. And I believe that's true. The wisdom of the undivided life. James has been speaking to us as we're going through this series of, of a single-mindedness that we are to have. A single-mindedness in trials, a single-mindedness, the way we carry about ourselves in relationships with others, that we have faith and works, we're to control the tongue, 
We're to show no partiality. We need to have a single-mindedness. I want you to keep in mind that James, the half-brother of Jesus, takes a lot out of the Sermon on the Mount. So if you're going through this study and you're periodically reading uh, the passages that Pastor Jake and I are speaking on, um, it's good to go back and read the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. We need the message of James. This call for single-mindedness. As James is looking and writing to these 12 tribes that are scattered throughout Asia, the churches that are there, as he speaks about in his word, he's holding the word of God up as a mirror for this church. He's delivering a hard message to the church, something that they need to hear. Pastor Jake last week uh, preached a message from the first five verses of this text that we have this morning. If you haven't listened to that, I would highly recommend that you go back and listen to it. Highly recommend it. It's a hard message, but it needs to be heard. Probably one of the best messages that Pastor Jake has, has given in some time. It was in that message on worldliness kills, that's what he entitled the message, that he made a statement, and I'm going to make it a a statement here before I get started this morning. He said this, we do the things we do because we love the things we love. We do the things we do because we love the things we love. I want you to just think about that for a moment. Think about what you did this last week or the week prior. You know, when we went out of town, Gayla and I, we went to Montana. Now, we've taken vacations before and sometimes gone over the weekend, and we wouldn't attend worship. We'd just say we're on vacation. But we were convicted as we're reading and studying through things that, you know, vacation doesn't matter. Jesus matters. Vacation is something that Jesus gives us as a blessing through the people that we know through our employers, through the church, so we can go and get a respite from time to time. (laughs) But God doesn't give us a respite from worship. It's a commandment for us to gather together with the saints. It was a problem with the Hebrews. You know, when we went through the book of Hebrews, that some were forsaking the gathering, gathering together of the saints. So Gail and I did a little Google search. We were up outside of Kalispell, Montana, And praise God, there was a little PCA church there in Kalispell that we went to. Lovely church. But oh, brothers and sisters, was it so good to worship. That was the highlight of the week. The absolute highlight of the week. Meeting fellow Christians, seeing another church gather together, which though I'm not a part of, I am a part of. That makes sense to you. We have a lovely time. But think about the things that you've done. Think about the pursuits that you've had. The things that you've desired, the passions that you've had. Are they related to God in any way, shape, or form? Or is He kind of last on the list? You've heard people talk about your checkbook is an opening to your heart. It shows where you spend money for sure, but also might give an indication where you spend your time. But your lives, if you are honest with yourself, will be a reflection of your heart and your relationship to God. 
This particular passage is a difficult passage as well. This is going to talk about the grace that is given to the humble. But it's also going to give ten commands that are going to be trying and hard for all of us. The Greeks were pagans. But they were famous for philosophy. Philosophy was simply the love of wisdom, the study of wisdom. And they did have some wisdom, some great philosophers. They had a keen insight for human nature. One of the stories that they would tell was about Narcissus. You know, the beautiful boy who saw his reflection in a pool and fell in love with it and couldn't pull himself away. He died there looking upon himself, so wrapped up in himself. Pastor Jake's message last week talked about the worldliness kills. It talks about the quarrels and it talks about the fighting, everything that takes place. At the heart, it's self-centeredness. It's being captivated with yourself. I've shared before about Terrell Owens, a football player, played with the 49ers, played with the Cowboys and some others, and I've shared this before from the pulpit. He had a phrase that he would say, I love me some me. That's true of all of us. We love ourselves. Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, and he, would, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because you love yourself more than anything. I love myself more than anything. And I will pursue whatever makes me happy. But what does that lead to? It's what Pastor Jake talked about last week. It leads to being self-absorbed, selfish. Proverbs 21 says, Every man's way is right unto his own eyes. And that is true. James is pointing this out to us. We need, as Sinclair Ferguson says, a spiritual checkup from time to time. And James chapter 4 is a spiritual checkup. You look at the passage that Pastor Jake spoke on. And if we're honest, what we like to do is go, yeah, that's a problem. I see that in the church. Yeah, but it's not me. It's him. It's her. It's you. It's you. It's you. But it's not me. (laughs) James is writing this to the church, brothers and sisters. It's true of the church that was here in about 42 A.D., It's been true of the church in every age since. We love me some me. We come to church so often and it's all about us. And it's not about God. Worship by its very definition is about God and God alone. We are to come with grateful hearts for a great salvation that's been given to us. But yet we come, I don't like that song. I don't like the voice of that person. That prayer was too long. I didn't like what the pastor had to say. We become very critical because it's not meeting our needs, our pleasures, our desires. We like to be lifted up. So these churches in Asia heard this 
very difficult message delivered by James. James the pastor. And if you will, James the doctor, giving them a spiritual checkup. Fortunately, this hard message doesn't mean that God abandons us because He is faithful. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with Him, we also live with Him. If we endure with Him, we reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful because He cannot deny Himself. That is the glorious nature of this particular passage about Him giving us more grace, greater grace. I love the hymn, Grace That Is Greater. The chorus says, Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. This morning I want to touch on four different points. Grace for love lost. Great loving grace. Grace to renew love. And grace to sustain love. Let's talk about grace for love lost. Let's begin with that. Much of this is what Jake talked about last week. But let me ask you a question. Do you remember your first love? Do you remember your first love? I remember March 17th, 1979, St. Patrick's Day. I was working at the Target over there at Parker and 75. And I happened to be working that night. I may have shared this before. And so I was asked to go up front and simply unlock the door and let people go out. And we had another guy up there that would walk the girls to the cars because the employees had to park on the far side of the parking lot. And I'm standing up there. There's double doors at that particular location. And I'm just standing up there, and here comes this girl. She's got green pants on and a green and white stripe, vertical stripe top. She had a little rabbit coat. And I said, man... came up and let, let her out and Skip was there with me, another employee, and he walked her out and I'm just watching all the way as they go to the cars. Now I wish I could tell you at the time I was going to go, I'm going to have that girl. But I didn't. But I was captivated. I was honestly, thoroughly captivated. She was my first love. Still is. But there's a greater love. That would come years later for me in 1994. I've shared before that. You can go back and listen to Sermon on the Mount, Hungering and Thirsting for Righteousness. I talk about that and I give my testimony in it, but it's, it's simple. I was in Miami, Florida at the Doral Country Club and I was doing a, a homework assignment, Sermon on the Mount, of all things. And I come to the place where I'm reading the Beatitudes and I go, this isn't me. And I simply prayed, Lord, don't leave me in this place. And that's the first time I saw Jesus. It's the first time I saw a new love 
of my life, which would be the primary love of my life. And I love my wife dearly. She's my wife. She's my lover. She's my best friend. But as I get older in the faith, I've come to know that nothing compares with our love for Jesus. And when I first came to faith, like I first saw my wife Gayla, I wanted to be with her all the time. All the time. And so it was with Jesus. I wanted to be with Him all the time. That's when I started reading through the Bible every year. That's when I started taking more and more inductive Bible studies. I couldn't get enough. Maybe that's true of you when you first came to faith. Maybe you don't know the month, the day, the hour, and so on. But you came to faith. And when you first came to faith, something was different. You were in love. You were in love with the One that expressed love greater than anyone ever expressed it. Jesus on the cross. When He died for you and me. Nancy Guthrie talks about in her book, Blessed, which is a little bit of a commentary or theology of Revelation. She looks at Jesus in that first chapter and what He looks like. How captivating that image is of Him. It's like me seeing Gala for the first time. I can close my eyes and I can still picture her in that outfit. She probably can't, but I can. But there's a picture of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 and it's meant to rock our world. It's meant to make us think and see Jesus in a whole new way. Because when you get to chapter 2, and Jesus starts talking to the churches, every one of those attributes about Him in chapter 1 come up within each of those letters to the churches. Nancy Guthrie says it's kind of like a report card. You know when you were in grammar school or high school? Report cards would come out, at least when I was a kid, and the parents had to sign it and then you had to take it back. So they knew you gave it to them and they saw your grades. So you could have that conversation. Jesus is revealing Himself to the churches. And then He's revealing something about them. What they're doing good and what they're not doing so good. What classes they did well in, got A's and B's, and what classes they're not doing well in. Maybe comments from the teacher. The first church that is mentioned... The church at Ephesus. He commends them. He commends them for being able to spot out false apostles. He he commends them for their patient endurance. They're a church that's doing some of the right things, but you know what the charge is against them? That they have lost their first love. They've lost their first love. And what James tries to say here in the beginning of chapter 4 is this. If you lose your first love, your passion, your desire, you're going to look to fill it with something else. And you know what? You're going to fill it with the things that you love. The things that you do are because they're the things that you love. You may drift. We need the grace to find our first love. So, who do you love? What do you love? 
We've had some of the Word of God proclaimed already this morning, the reading of the Scripture, the passage we looked at. Do you believe the Word of God? Do you believe that it's God-inspired Word written through the hands of men who are led by the Spirit? Do you believe that it is God speaking to you and to me? If it is, then listen. James says earlier in this epistle, be doers of the Word. Be doers of the Word. Jesus said in John's Gospel, He who loves me keeps my commandments. You can't keep them if you don't know them. You can't have them if you don't read them. God knows everything, and He knows everything about you. He knows about your life. He knows about not mine. He knows about our lives together as the church here at Trinity. The good, the bad, the commendable, and the contemptible. He knows that we need to be encouraged. He knows that we need to be affirmed. And He knows we need to be confronted at times. And He knows we need to be condemned at times. In Revelation chapter 2, there's the refrain that happens over and over. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not to buildings, to people. The body of Christ. We sit in this sanctuary as brothers and sisters. Like I said before, we'll hear a word like this. It's hard and we'll say, yeah, that, that person needs it or that person needs it, but we don't say, I need it. We all need it. This passage is going to call on us to do something that's hard. Something that might be costly. Jesus knows who you love and what you do- love. What we need is a reversal. We need to get off of me and get on to Jesus. John Piper wrote a book, I mentioned it earlier, in 1986, Desiring God. Desiring God. It's about, he says, in the beginning of his book, Christian hedonism. Now we think of hedonism as a derogatory term. But you know in chapter 4 of James, the word passions in verse 1 and verse 3 is the Greek word where we get hedon or hedonism. It's about passion. John Piper says, I became a Christian hedonist. In other words, I became a Christian, a follower of Christ with passion. To seek over and over my first love. And we need to do that. Is he your first love? Or are you here today and you say, I don't even know who this guy is? Grace, loving grace, is greater than all our sins. Jesus knows that we are prone to wander. Come now, Fount says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. He knows that that's true. He knows that we need grace. 
Grace to find our first love, but then grace to renew that love. In verse 6 it says, but He gives more grace. That particular translation doesn't quite make it for me. The, the word that's used there for more means greater. Like abundantly. Like we have little rolling hills here. We went to Montana and there was mountains. That kind of greater. It's not just a little bit more. It's a whole lot more. His grace for everything that we need. I recommended that book by Dane Ortland, Gentle and Lowly. He talks about in that book the grace of God, the mercy of God. More so about the Son, and then not to be excluded, but the Father and the Spirit to a lesser degree. But how Jesus comes for us. He pursues us. That's the greater grace. He doesn't sit idle. So even though James talks to this church about the things that are bad, that that you're self-centered, that you're obsessed with yourself, that you love yourself, my grace is greater. And I'm going to pursue you. Because God the Father and I made a promise to save a people for Him through my sacrifice. And He will complete it, Paul says in Philippians. But Dane Ortland says, you want to get an idea of what this is like? He says, the book of Jeremiah, you can summarize it this way. There's 52 chapters in the book of Jeremiah. For the first 29 chapters, Jeremiah hammers away on the people of Israel. Just like James does at the beginning of chapter 4. Talks about all the bad talks about them breaking the covenant, talks about idolatry, talks about spiritual adultery, the things that James does. And then in chapters 34 through 52, he hammers away at the nation. God will judge the world in totality. But nestled in this, in this center section, so to speak, Chapter 30, 31, 32, 33. It is called by theologians the book of consolation. It is despite God reproving, so to speak, His people, He's going to complete the process of salvation. And it's all a grace. Every bit of it is grace. And it's grace that is greater than all their sins. And there's one verse that Dane Ortland speaks about in his book, Jeremiah 31.20. Let me read it for you here. Is Ephraim, that's a, one of the tribes of Israel, but it's also a term of endearment for Israel. Is Ephraim my dear son? It's a rhetorical question. Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, as he's done for 29 chapters, I do still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. So when James says, but he has more grace. He has grace that is greater than all your sins. But right on the heels of that, brothers and sisters, comes a warning. 
he looks back to probably Proverbs 33, 34, maybe Psalm 136. It's the verse that we had as our moment of reflection. It says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now that opposes the proud can be the unbeliever, but it can also be the believer who is caught up with themselves. You may need some encouragement, and he's going to do it graciously. But he's going to do it whether you do or not. So what's better is to do what follows. The prescription, if you will, for the grace to renew love. Paul says in Romans, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And we need it to abound towards us. We need this kind of grace to renew love. And so, as Sinclair Ferguson, I mentioned earlier, talks about this being um, like a doctor and talking about what we need to get our attention You can think about the symptoms being given in the first part of James. And the prognosis or the diagnosis isn't good. It's spiritual adultery. You're at enmity with God. You're going to be separated from God. You need to renew that love. You need to renew that relationship. It's a call to repentance. But he gives a prescription in verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. Gives a prescription about the grace that is needed to renew. And this is ten, ten imperatives. This is what I talked about earlier. This is the hard work. But it's a work of grace. And it's interesting, these ten commands that are given, they're all active imperatives except two. The first and the last. The first and the last. Those are Passive imperatives. That ought to make your mind go, what? How is an imperative passive? Daniel Wallace in his book that's on intermediate Greek, actually advanced Greek, um, you take it in the last class for seminary of your Greek. You usually have, at Westminster we had three. Um, courses in Greek, and this is the last one, and you go through, and it's, it's, it's really the challenging pieces that, that come with Greek. And there is a aorist tense, which means at a given point in time with, with an action that affects what goes forward. But it's in the passive voice, but it's an imperative. And so what Daniel Wallace says here, and it's the, ver- the first Imperative and the last imperative. So the first one is submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And, and what it is, is it, it is a, an action that we do, but we do it passively. Is the, is the best way that I can describe it. When I was in that hotel room at the Doral Country Club, and I was confronted with the Word of God and said, this says nothing about me. It was literally on my knees. And my prayer was this, God, don't leave me in this place. That was a passive imperative. I'm asking, or asking Him, don't leave me in this place, the imperative part of it, but I'm passive. 
meaning here I come, I'm here, I'm open. I, I have nothing to hide. I have nothing of my own. I need all of you to do your work in all of me. That's the passive imperative. So the first prescribed recommendation from Dr. James, Pastor James, if you will, is submit yourselves to God. You have to have those moments where you go to Him in prayer and realize, see Him for who He is. Isaiah chapter 6. Read that from time to time. Isaiah is seeing God in all His glory, in all His holiness, and simply says, Woe is me, I am undone. When you can see Christ in the Scriptures that way, you melt. You're radically changed. It's me seeing Gala for the first time. Let me tell you, so, St. Patrick's Day, 79, I see her for the first time. You know what I couldn't shake? How am I going to ask her out for the first time? I thought about it over and over and over and over. I was consumed with that thought. So Lord, don't leave me in this place. See Christ for who He is revealed in the Scriptures. Read Revelation chapter 1. See Him as He is now ruling and reigning. And you'll fall in love all over again. And you'll fall on your feet and you'll submit yourself to Him. Then and only then can you be about the active part of the prescription. And this is where it gets hard. So right after submission comes the next two pills, if you will. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And draw yourself near to God and he will draw near to you. Now this is a beautiful couplet. There is nothing better, I read this week, than to see the back of, Je- of Satan and the face of Jesus. To see the back of the devil and the face of Jesus. There's nothing greater than that. So the first command after your submission is resist the devil. And there's a promise with it. He will flee from you. Listen, we have a poor concept of the devil, of Satan. Don't get me wrong, he's powerful. More powerful than you and I, but at the same time, he is a defeated foe. He cannot make you do anything. He can tempt you, absolutely. He can deceive you, but the choice is still yours. He can't put you in an arm bar and go, you will do this and force you to do that. He doesn't put a gun to your head, but He will whisper. He will speak. He will tempt you, just like Eve in the garden. Just like David with Bathsheba. But you're going to act on that. But what's prescribed here is resist Him. And how do you resist Him? Paul goes through this at great lengths in Ephesians chapter 6. I'll just point you over to that, the spiritual warfare that takes place. You have the sword of the Spirit. You have the shield of faith. You have the gospel of peace that shroud your shoes. The belt of truth. It is the Word of God that you need to have. When Jesus was tempted by the devil... In the wilderness, he used Scripture. You need to know Scripture for that. You need to go, I'm not going to do that against my my God. I'm not going to do that against Jesus. I'm not going to commit spiritual adultery. 
and he will go. He will flee. And then draw near to God. In Hebrews, we learned that Jesus is the faithful high priest. That he has made the way. The curtain was torn in two inside the temple. And now we can approach God. And we can find grace in time of need. So we can seek his face. So that's really talking about that command drawing near to God. It's drawing near to him in prayer. It's what, what Jake talked about last night, the listlessness of our prayer lives. <laughs> Jesus is there to assist you. The Holy Spirit will enable you to pray to the Father and find grace for time of need. But it does take some doing on our part. You've got to set aside, set aside the time. But if you do draw near to God, He'll draw near to you. And you'll find as you're resisting the devil, as you're drawing near to God, it's like a marriage that is aging well like a good wine. You're going to love it more and more the better it gets. And so this relationship will come. Now for the hard part. You know, Isaiah in chapter 6, when he saw the Lord, he said, Woe is me, I am undone. He saw his sin for what it was. He knew he wasn't pure. And the angel comes and puts the hot coal on his lips. And he says, you're clean. Confessing sin to the Lord is not an easy task. We don't like to talk about our sin. Not even to ourselves. We like to push it off. Well, it wasn't really that bad. Or or we like, like to let time go by. Okay, I've slipped up and sinned again with the same sin I've done however many times. And I just think, well, maybe God didn't see it. Maybe I'll just let a little bit more time go by. Maybe I'll let it slide. We don't want to cleanse our hands, you sinners, or purify your hearts, you double-minded. James gets right to the, to the quick on this one. Hands symbolize our actions, our deeds. And the heart is the inner portion of us. We're to cleanse our works, our deeds, and we're also to purify our inward self. We need to be holy because He is holy. And the only way to be holy is to have sins forgiven. Finally, He's calling on us to have this repentance that not only confesses our own sins, but it confesses sins of the corporate body. It says, Be wretched, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Too many of us don't see sin the way God sees sin. We don't see sin. We'll laugh at the dirty joke. We'll, we'll find pleasure in a, in a film or a TV show or something that mocks God's plan for humanity, an adulterous relationship. James is saying, church, there's something you need to do. You need to realize that that self-centeredness isn't just you, it's the church as a whole. And it's true of the church in every single age. And the world sees it. And you know what the world calls it? Hypocrisy. 
It's when the church gets down on its knees and repents as a body together. Looks to come clean, not only their individual relationships with Christ, but as a community. It says we're not going to live for ourselves anymore. We're going to live for Christ and for one another. I'm going to step on toes. We should never have to talk about we need volunteers for this, this, this if they're prescribed within Scripture. Let me make, let me make that comment up front. God has given everyone at least one gift to be used for the sake of the body as a whole. You have at least one. And so here's my question. Do you know what your gift is and are you using it? And if not, you need to be wretched, mourn, and weep over that sinfulness. And get about loving God and loving others through exercising your gift in the church. We all need that. I was convicted of that this week and the week prior as I was preparing this message this morning. There's things I have to change in doing the pastorate. I need to spend less time on me and more time in the Word. That's true of me, your pastor. We all need that. We need to see see sin the way God sees it and mourn and weep. Mourn and weep for the sin of the church, but the sin of the world. The Lord's Prayer begins with, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do we ask ourselves, are we doing the will of God right now on earth as it's done in heaven? Because in heaven, there's no question. It's just done. We need to do that as well. And if we don't do it, He will see that we do it. One of the nice things about the Old Testament is it reveals God as who He is through and through. And He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And the scary thing is, is when it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, if you don't humble yourself before the Lord believer, He will see that you do. In Leviticus chapter 26, interesting passage. It talks about the people of Israel. And he's talked about blessing them and then he's talked about the promise of of a curse that will come if you don't. And he says this three times in Leviticus chapter 26 and this should shake you because he says this starting in verse 27. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me but walk contrary to me and listen to this, then I will walk contrary to you. That will humble you. If you're a believer, if you start getting drawing, being drawn away, you start to wander, God will see to it that you humble, you're humbled and that you come back. But he may do it in a painful way. If you walk contrary to him, he'll walk contrary to you. 
The final command is to humble yourselves before the Lord. It's as if James kind of puts forth the hard part of things and he, and he says, you know what, if you, if you would just get to this point, maybe you can take this last pill of the ten. And if you'll do that, take that one, it'll do all the other work for you. If you will humble yourself before the Lord. In other words, you're God and I'm not. You remember the things that James has already said in this book. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Let the implanted Word produce fruit within you. If you endure these trials of life, you'll be blessed with the crown of life. If you come before Him looking for those things, you will receive those things. Well, let me close with this. Do you desire God? Do you have a passion for Him? Or do you feel like, I just can't get there. I've got to get myself ready for this. I need to clean up my own act before I do this. No, God's grace is greater. And it's greater for you. His grace is greater. He will never forsake us. His faithfulness is perfect. His promises are sure. His love is strong. His steadfast love endures forever. So look to Christ. Trust in Him. Let Him be your passion. Return to your first love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for your word. We thank you for what it does within us. We thank you for the promises that we have in Christ Jesus that though we are sinners, your grace is greater than our sin. And Lord, that you can rekindle our love for Jesus any time that it is needed. I do pray that you would convict all of us to seek you, to trust you, to love you more and more and more. In Jesus' name, amen.